Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to The Shift, the podcast that aims to tell the no-holds-barred truth about being a woman post-40. Created and hosted by me, writer and broadcaster, Sam Baker. My guest today is the singer-songwriter, Mickey Berenyi. If you were a teenager in the late 80s or early 90s, with even vaguely alternative taste, you can't have missed Mickey and her band, Lush. Mickey's distinctive look and bright red hair was an icon for anyone who didn't quite fit in. When the band split, Mickey went on to build a new career as, wait for it, a magazine sub-editor. Hmm, a job that on the face of it could hardly be more different than the rock and roll glamour of life on the road. Holidays, maternity leave, leaving at six? Who knew? But once you've drunk the Kool-Aid, there's no going back. And now 56, Mickey still plays and tours with her band Piroshka. I look back on my 20-year-old self and think of, you know, some of the opinions I had. And, you know, you cringe because you think, oh, God, I thought I had all the bloody answers. You know what I mean? I met Mickey in her North London kitchen to talk and talk and talk. I mean, believe me, this conversation goes absolutely Everywhere, from revisiting her teenage diaries for her memoir, Fingers Crossed, to breaking free of the wrong kind of woman narrative, and how the macho music industry made her feel over the hill at 30. 30! I mean, boggles. Our mind boggles. We also discussed the double standards around ageing and the sheer joy of freeing yourself from the anxiety of youth. So tell me about the diaries. Did you keep diaries literally from being very small? Yeah, I think I got I got given a diary as a Christmas present. And I, you know, first it's all stickers and, you know, kind of searching for things to say. <laughs> oh, yeah, like mortifying things. Yeah, yeah, just, just sort of trying to be a bit, oh, this happened today. Or, you know, it's quite boring, but, you know. But then it starts to sort of, because this was around the time my mum moved to America mm. and there is a lot of reading between these lines. It's actually slightly heartbreaking. So I think at that age, you don't know how to express that stuff. You're not that honest. You're, it's a bit kind of, yeah, it's great. And, you know, I didn't even miss mum last night, you know, and it's that kind of, you know. Oh, <laughs> And you're sort of trying to sort of jolly up, you know, there's endless cuttings from the TV times of me sitting up till one o'clock in the morning on my own watching telly. And even that's a bit of a giveaway. Like, this is a bit weird, isn't it? I'm like 12 and I'm watching horror films at 1am, you know. So, and I think I just, it, you know, it, it just became something that actually really worked for me. It was like, you know, if you're lonely and you're on your own, you suddenly realise there is this sort of space that you can vent into. So I think after that, I just used to buy notebooks and just fill them. But then I think by the time I was in 
lush when I had quite a busy life by then. It was more a space to kind of let all the angst out, you mm. know. And so even reading those, I had to sort of balance it a bit because you get a very one-sided view. Of course, yeah. You know. <laughs> yeah, if you mean if you can't be one-sided in your own diary, <laughs> where can you be? Exactly. Although it's interesting that I had that thought process of rant, 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 and then it's always like, oh, yeah, but it's probably this, and maybe it was my fault. And, you know, there's this constant sort of circular arguments that go on in my own head um, that are themselves quite exhausting to yeah. read. How old do you think you were when you started to kind of get to grips with your child, just your childhood and, your, you, know, you know, what had happened to you and what had made you the person that you were? I think... Uh, you know, what was quite interesting about my parents splitting up and my mum going to live in America is that I really noticed that around, you know, probably about 12, 13, when I went to Queen's College, especially, where, you know, you actually had people who were like, your mum lives in America. Like, mm. and not just, your mum lives in America. It was kind of like, well, that's a bit weird, isn't it? Yeah. And actually, I really defend that you know because you want you don't want to be pitied you Mm. know or seen as a loser at school so you're like no it's brilliant I get to go to LA and it's you know so there's this sort of cheerful exterior that kind of makes the best of things so I think what a lot of other teenagers usually go through which is around that age possibly rebelling against their parents. Mm. And even if it's just casually amongst friends, like, oh, I hate my mom, you know, all of that. I didn't really go through that. So it didn't happen till I was probably 19, that kind of age where I really suddenly thought, actually, I've defended them throughout mm. my entire adolescence. And there's been all this sort of self-harm and all the drama and all of that. I've never considered that they might have added to that. So I kind of went through that then and I didn't, I sort of avoided both of them, partly because my mum was in a relationship with an absolutely appalling bloke. And my dad had kind of, you know, we grew a bit distant because I moved out and stuff. And then he was quite unforgiving about that and demanded. I kind of got to see him a bit more objectively as quite a difficult man in in his own way. Was there ever any question of you going to America with your mum and her new husband? Oh, for sure. You know, she she really wanted me to come, but I'd already been moved around so much. I didn't really like Ray. You know, Ray had five children. I think it was, did we know about? Yeah, no, we knew about five. It actually turned out to be, a, there's another one in Australia that they found out about later. You know, he was someone who, and I, I felt really bad because my stepsisters, my two stepsisters I was very close to, so we used to sometimes go to America together. Mm. I mean, they lived in poverty, right? I mean, they were way worse off than I was. And, you know, the, their mother, bless her, she was a sweet woman, but she was a chronic alcoholic. And they had a really, really troubled upbringing and were in care at some point. And, you know, I just... And it was difficult because my mum always wanted me to come to America. I don't think they were ever given the opportunity to have that, whereas I think definitely my older stepsister would have wanted that so much. You know, I've had a lot of people go like, oh, my God, you're so defend, you defend your dad and all of that, but he was an appalling parent. And I I know, right, but 
the comparisons I have are people like Ray who just abandoned their children, you know, Mm. and I think that is far worse. And I actually think it's quite interesting for that era that my dad Mm. really held on to me because I have friends who's, you know, dad's left. They had a new family, weren't bothered. You know what I mean? Yeah, you're actually, that's a really good point because in the 70s and 80s, that was not usual. No. And so he was flawed. And I'm not saying that he didn't do it for selfish reasons, mm. but there's a value to that, that I was wanted. And, you know, um, he wasn't capable of looking after me. But mm. I just think, you know, the, the fact that he wanted to, the fact that he wanted to have me and he did his best because he was a very flawed person himself. I do value that. It seemed to me that you actually spent a lot of time worrying about hurting the feelings of adults. I mean, everybody gets some kind of stuff around the grown-ups in their lives, around not wanting to disappoint them and like maybe, sec- you know, learning to second guess a bit too much. And But that really made me feel like I had this constant feeling when I was reading the book. I felt constantly aware of little Mickey, <laughs> just kind of trying to keep all the emotional balls in the air almost. It felt a bit like... Yeah. And I think that was partly because, you know, my, again, I mean, I don't think either of my parents are very good with boundaries, full stop. If I didn't really want to ally with either one of them, I wanted both of Mm. them. So my dad, you know, would leap on anything that if I slagged off Ray, for instance, you know, he'd be all over it. And my mum was the same, you know, with Nora and and if dad was unreliable or whatever, like my mum would be, you know, start ranting about it. And I just didn't, you know, I didn't really want to be the trigger to give them another excuse to sort of go, especially my mum, like, well, you, we obviously need to get you away from that house. And I think that went all the way through my childhood. Like, I do think it's interesting that when, you know, I got done for shoplifting and there was a social worker who came around and, you know, they kind of looked around this kind of what someone described to me as a kind of gorman ghast house. Yeah. <laughs> you know, oh my so. God. It's like your dad's house. My dad's house in Wilsdon. I kind of knew that there were a lot of problems within the house, that there were a lot of things that were inappropriate. Of course I knew that because I had school friends who, if I said the wrong thing, would kind of look at me in abject horror. And I think, right, note to self, don't say that again. Clearly, I didn't really have a lot of knowledge, but I think that I felt that if a social worker got a whiff of it, I'd get taken into care. I mean, your mum was, I mean, I should say you're uh, half Japanese, aren't you? So I don't even want to think about what Nazi Nora made of that. But um, your mum was an actress, wasn't she? She was in the Bond movie and she's incredibly attractive and you are incredibly attractive um but what was what was that like growing up having a mum who you kind of who was glamorous and stunning and and yeah I mean I I think I was I mean it's funny isn't it because I think you view your parents in such a different way you know so you know I get people going like oh god your kids must be like so excited that you're on stage and like no not really they don't don't care actually I think I just, you know, kids end up, or certainly I did, just end up using the bits that they can use. Mm. You know, it's great to go into school and have like free Wombles posters because your mum's going to be in the film. And then that means that loads of other kids are like... What part was she in the Wombles film? 
well, there's a there's a Japanese. I mean, it's quite oh, racist, yeah. but yeah. you know, yeah, there's a Japanese couple in yeah. it. Oh yeah, and at that time <laughs> as well, I bet that was the casting was probably of everything was really racist. There's a lot of arso and kind of bowing and <laughs> whatever you know, it's the time. So I kind of quite enjoyed the benefits of it. You know, it did add a touch of glamour. Um, and I was quite proud of her that she was young and pretty and, uh, mm. you know, because it meant, you know, it kind of rubs off on you a bit, you know, when you're associated mm. with yeah, that. Yeah, like that. Kind of reflected glory. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But I just felt like such an ugly duckling in comparison. You know, I didn't for a minute think that I was, you know, anywhere near able to do that. And, so, and I think it's partly why I kind of, became a goth and all of that. I was very insecure about my looks. Um, and I also noticed that she behaved in a way that facilitated her being perceived as very charming. And that involved centering men, mm. you know, and to the degree of being taken away from her child, which I thought was, mm. you know, certainly when I was older, was, I just thought was insane. So, so in some ways, although I kind of really admired her and I loved the fact that she was, you know, in, on TV and, and that was exciting, there was a whole other side that I completely rejected, actually, because I could see that it was, you know, it was disempowering. You know, the funny thing is, is when she moved to America, she was the one with the money. You know, it was her money and her family's money that facilitated that. And it pissed me off because I did think, well, you could have just said no, but you didn't because Ray wanted to go and it was Ray's career and it was Ray's dream. And do you know what I mean? Do you think that affected your approach to relationships, your approach to men? I mean, to some degree, although I, I think my dad did as well, you know, I think... I mean, all this stuff gets so jumbled up, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, that's the no one. You can't unpick one strand. Really, yeah, because I, I think with my dad, you know, I mean, there's, you know, but that kind of rep, a little bit of a bad boy kind of thing, you know, it's quite appealing. And, you know, I kind of get that that might have driven it also because it was my mum's choice in men. But at the same time, you know, my dad was, he did like women, you know, mm. he didn't... He kind of treated them like shit sometimes, but not in a kind of, certainly not in a violent way, certainly not in a nasty way, just in a reckless way where he would just cheat on them and then, you know, would try and get away with it. And But he was actually, you know, very sentimental about my mother. All the women he ever split up with or whatever, he was always never had anything but good to say about them. So he did actually really love the company of women. I think that the kind of bad boy men that I went out with, I wouldn't tolerate them unless they actually liked women. You know, yeah. that was part of the so deal. So in a weird way, you had picked up a good lesson. You know, it's where I have a real difficulty. You know, when women talk about, you know, shit boyfriends they've had and blah, blah, blah. 
again, I mean, you know, yeah, so it's complicated because I always think, well, you know, I always felt quite complicit with that. So the very early relationships I had, and I picked people who were way too old, you know, and, and there's that kind of mm. precociousness that you think you can keep up, but you can't actually because you inhabit a different world and it is impossible for that person unless they are an extremely caring person mm. to not ride roughshod over you. And I think I just accepted that half of that was my own fault. You know, I mean, for fuck's sake, if you're 17 and you're going to go out with someone who's 27, don't expect, you know, you're not on an equal footing. Yeah. You know, and I think it's where I've always struggled a bit with, you know, men who go out with much younger women. Like, I get it. I know that there's a million reasons and sometimes it works and blah, blah, blah. But you're not equals, you know? Mm. And I think that, you know, I personally think that's specifically why a lot of men pick younger women. You know, it fascinates me because I can't imagine, certainly when I, when I became 29, I thought I can't imagine anything worse than having to hang out with a 17 year old boy all the fucking time. No, exactly. That's the thing. Like, I mean, even now, I when you see blokes getting older and older and their girlfriends not getting any older, they're like, you know, getting the, the girlfriends of the same age as they were 20 years ago when the men are, you know, 40, 50, 60. I just think, oh my God, are you basically getting your intellectual stimulation somewhere else? Just not to say all 20-year-old girls are not smart, because of course a lot of them really are. But what about shared experience and well, they're smart in the way that I can sit down with some of Ivan's friends mm. and go, they're smart, but they're, you know, you have to make so many allowances because they have no experience. They have opinions that they are incredibly sort of passionate about that, you know, are nonsense, but you just yeah. have to let them go through life and find out for themselves. People probably thought that about us. Absolutely. You know, yeah. I, I look back on my 20-year-old self and think of, you know, some of the opinions I had and, you know, you cringe because you think, oh, God, I thought I had all the bloody answers, you know what yeah. I mean? Well, I thought you did. I mean, when I was, when you started Lush, I can't I even remember exactly. But, I mean, you know dates better than me. But you were, uh, when I was reading that bit of the book and we were texting yesterday and you talked about the kind of goth armor and when you start to establish your own identity and you almost I don't know whether you did this but for me the goth thing was a little bit about like a total rejection of girliness as well and not being because I'm ginger and freckly and you know was not was kind of an odd looking kid um, and all the grown-ups always said you'll grow into your looks and I always thought a I didn't believe them and b I just thought I don't want these looks. I want different looks. But so for me, being a goth was about, I can't be one of those pretty girls. So I'm just going to go over there and do that. And so when Lush started and it was this, if it was the bands I liked, like which were the bands that you like, like Sisters of Mercy and I, I Cocteau Twins. Oh yeah, yeah. My yeah. God, the Cocteau Twins. <laughs> and, oh, love. Um, and they, so you were kind of coming out of that like being cool, young, angry women, which were things that you just didn't get to see then. And I know there were blokes in the band, but as you write about a lot, which we can talk about, you never saw them because that's the way the band was portrayed in the media. When Lush started, 
Were you trying to do that or were you just having a laugh? Were you trying to be... We didn't think about image at all. I can absolutely promise you that because I have had people go like, oh, you know, the whole two girls, two boys and you're all like, you know, good looking or whatever people want to say. Do you know what I mean? And I just laughed because it was absolutely... Me and Emma were friends at school. I met Chris and Mariel and Steve at North London Poly and literally said, you want to be in a band? And that was it. It was just circumstantial. It wasn't like, oh, let's pick him because he's good looking or whatever. It was just whoever is available, right? And I didn't dye my hair red to be in the band. I was mucking about with my hair since I was 14 or whatever. Mm. Do you know what I mean? And there was no look. There was no thought. It was just scrambling to keep up with events that were happening around us you know you get offered a gig or you sign to 4AD or I mean it's funny just going back a bit when you talk about like being a goth and adopting that look for a particular reason the thing was you know people like oh you know you rejected this and you became these cool girls there was no choice you know I don't Mm. know what it's like at private schools now but back then you know, you had like middle-class parents who kind of scrape the money together to get you into these schools. And I'm not going to lie, London schools back then were pretty shocking, you know, Mm. state schools. And, you know, I rock up at Queen's, but most of the people there are so much wealthier. I would have loved to have been in their world and accepted it was us that was rejected and that's why you find your own identity and it's like well we might as well go full pelt the mm. other direction and just go to army and navy cut our own hair and forge our own identity i think it's like and this this is my theory about when women pile on other women actually i just think like whether it's whether or not you choose to have a child or whether or not you choose to take hrt or whether or not you breastfeed it's not just it's never just about your decision it seems to be that whatever your decision is there will be someone who made a different decision who thinks that your decision is a slight on their decision i just it just seems to be that it's like somehow you deciding to do something different is a rejection Whereas it's just survival, especially in that school situation. And I I think it's also, I don't know, you know, I think there's all, I think that part of the reason why women can be so fucking horrible to each other, and it's often the ones that if you ask a bloke, they go, oh no, she's lovely. And you'll go like, be fucking isn't, you know, maybe lovely to you, but she's a right bitch, you know. (laughs) And I think it's also because I think a lot of those women who are very sort of, you know, they are putting on a front for blokes. You know, they realise that being popular with men is quite important. You know, it Mm. gets you somewhere. If you see a woman getting popular in a different way, that's a threat because, you you know, you and that to me is always the sort of the, you know, the real bind of being a woman is you have to make a choice. You know, because because it's all about what the fucking blokes think. Mm. You know, half of your personal decisions are a gameplay, you mm. know. Yeah. <laughs> and I think it's only when you realise that that is an utter waste of energy that you start making decisions for yourself. How old were you, do you think, when you realised that? To be honest, even by the time I was in Lush, you know, I think if I'd have relied on what 
men thought. I mean, even when I went out with Billy Childish, he, he thought I looked ridiculous. <laughs> you know, not so ridiculous that he didn't want to fuck me. Yeah. But I don't think he's ever been out with someone who looked like I did when I looked like you know, when I was that age, you know, with the gothy hair and too much makeup and, you yeah. know, mad kind of homemade clothes and what have you, you know, and I did get that kind of disapproval, you know, that lifetime of people going, oh, you'd be quite pretty if you oh. do. Oh, I was just going to say that. I'm so glad you said that. It's like, you could be so pretty if you just. Yeah. Um, and there was a point where I just thought, yeah, but I, I'm not doing this for you. You know, part of it was, was also, I think, having a dad like mine. I mean, you know, maybe lots of women think this. I kind of felt quite male myself. I, well, I felt like blokes have that. Why can't I have it? My dad acts like that. Why can't I act like that? I just yeah. assumed that I could do that because I didn't have a very feminine influence around me, maybe in those key adolescent years. Might not be a bad thing. Yeah, but so, like you were, you talk about a lot in the book that that did give rise to a lot of double standards, didn't it? Because you didn't behave the way the media or the music industry thought a nice young lady should behave. For sure. I mean, and maybe I'd had it from so many sides. You know, I'd had it with you know the kind of Japanese fetishization. Even I didn't get a whole lot of it, but you know, it would come up every now and again oh, you know, Japanese women and the exoticism and all that, which just made me drink cider and swear all the more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind of, that ain't me, you know, because people are constantly trying to fit you into these boxes. Well, that's how I felt. Yeah, and each time that happened, I'd just go, right, well, I'm just going to bust out of that box and prove that I'm not that. Because it just feels like a way to sort of fire you away, knock off all your interesting corners mm. and... And, you know, like put you in, you know, I always felt that being a woman was like walking down a sort of path with a load of fucking mousetraps all over the floor. You know, you put a foot wrong and, and someone will have a go and snap at you. And so you just have to put some DMs on and trample all over it, really. Yeah. Yeah. And just try not to let it affect your own behaviour because that way lies madness, you know, and... And of course, we're all affected by it. You know, I think you wrote a lot about that in your book about, you know, the pressure of being thin or or pretty or looking a certain way and the way that fashion changes, what shape you're supposed to be. And you're trying to, you know, suddenly have a, you know, curves and then no curves and all of that kind of stuff. And I think anyone with any sense realises that it's total waste of your time actually because you'll never get anywhere with it and I think you know I'm not saying it didn't hurt I think that music industry and certainly the press you know the problem with that kind of the the treatment of women at the time which wasn't appalling you know I wasn't sexually assaulted and I wasn't you know there were sort of small put downs and what have you fine but I think that the real problem was for me was that kind of wrong kind of woman narrative that's the thing that really, really annoyed me, I think, because the problem with tokenism is there's only room for one woman, you know, and one type of woman. So really? one minute you're being, you know, kind of lauded as, oh, you know, yeah, Mickey with her red hair and her fuck off attitude. And the next week that's not in anymore. Yeah. And it's like, oh, it's so tiresome. You know, she just swears and Fs and blinds. God, you know, it's so tedious. 
pick another woman. She's proud to be a woman who doesn't have to act like a man. Mm. You know, then you get the whole ladder thing. Whatever. Do you know what I mean? I mean, like you just when you just mentioned ladder, that's that whole thing. I mean, you'd been going a little while that when that really kicked in. But so how did it feel that kind of suddenly you're being, I mean, you were always really sexualized. You were always the sexy one because like it or not, you always were really sexy and but you were you were sexualized you were like forced into that front woman put everybody else in the back you know like I think in the book you say treated like you didn't start band to be treated like a piece of meat what, what was that like what was the 90s like in the music industry for a young woman there's an element of how much you play along with that stuff so again I would take a certain amount of personal responsibility you know, it may be that I was cast as quite sexy and this, that, and the other. But to be honest with you, I didn't really massively play up to it. I mean, you know, I, I get that you can look at the dress that I'm wearing on the cover of the book and, you know, someone could go, well, I'm sorry, but that is quite a sexy looking dress, right? It's just some short dress. It's a short dress, but, we you know, all... it's a kind of body map, whatever, yeah. you know. Yes, I'm not a, a jeans and a t-shirt. Yeah, you've got girl. clothes on, which frankly, most people, most young women trying to make a career in the 90s were being forced into like practically tits out pictures on the front of lads, Max. For sure. You know, if, if someone wants to, you know, if Madonna wants to sort of, you know, run around with her legs thrown wide open, go for it. Do you know what I mean? And those are your own boundaries of what you want to do. And there is something about, you know, exploring all the different areas of what it can be to a woman and to be a woman and, you know, actually subvert them and play with them. And all of those things I think are valid, but it is about your own boundaries. And I was very aware that I felt if you play that game, it becomes all about that. Right. Anything else you say is just brushed off. And I think that being on 4AD was really important, not just because it was a great label, but because it had, it, it was it, so credible. Yeah. And it, it didn't mean that people had to take you seriously, you know, because you're on a serious label. I personally felt about the kind of Britpop thing. To me, it was always about mainstream taking hold of independent music. I think that in the 80s, when I was into music and going to see bands, and when we signed to 4AD and when we were first playing those gigs with My Bloody Valentine and whoever else, there were a lot of women in those bands and they weren't sexualized. You know, Debbie mm. from the Valentines was not sexualized, right? Yeah. All right, That's there were fanboys who thought she was great, but she was not asked to put a bucking bikini on in the press. The no. throne muses were not sexualized in that no, way. That's true. And yeah. I felt that that was because independent music existed on a separate plane to major label music. And on major labels, yes, of course, Madonna was sexualized, blah, blah, blah. Those, a lot of the women who became successful in that world played on their sexuality and good luck to them, you know, but independent music was a reaction against that. And when Britpop came along, that's when the major labels and the mainstream got hold of independent music, as they did in America, alternative mm. music became the mainstream. And that's when the values of the mainstream also took over. And suddenly, 
you know, you can act like some macho dickhead, which I promise five years ago at a gig, if someone said, get your tits up, there would be a load of people in the audience going fucking wank. You know what I mean? Mm. Whereas suddenly it's all fine. Lots of the bands, you know, in an ironic inverted commas way have got, you know, girls doing sexy dancing on stage with them and go-go dancing. And, you know, and, and again, fine, haven't got a problem with it, but it just spread like wildfire. It was, and also because it wasn't just about music, that whole Britpop thing became about, you know, comedians and, you know, sort of soap actors and fashion people and photographers and all these, you know, it just became this sort of very different environment. Whereas prior to that, it was music. It was music and it was journalists, but the music was the focus. And once you get to Britpop, it, it's models and... Yeah, it's all about magazine covers and, yeah. And it was that real... It started with Loaded, didn't it? But it was that, And then it was that real era of FHM and Nuts and Zoo. And they, and they like, resurrected that, that terrible, like, bloke's mag. It used to be called Reader's Wives and Reader's Girlfriend. All of a sudden, getting your tits out was meant to be empowering. And I, at that point, I mean, by then I was probably 30 and I was thinking... Of even the last 10 years, 20 years, 30 years being about. Yeah, and it was all under the guise of, oh, it's fun, or it's it's uh, you know, it's just a bit of a laugh. We're, it's all very aware, we're all very self-aware. And yet the behavior ironic. You know, the, I mean, I could even accept that if there had been a boundary, but there wasn't, and suddenly the behavior spread, and it was all right to talk about girls like slags and I remember the NME doing a piece on Primal Scream and it was just suddenly all out, yeah, it's rock and roll and it's all about, you know, it's, and there was a real shift because I think with Scream and although they always had that bad boy image, it was kind of, people were a bit embarrassed to talk about some of the excesses. You know, they talk mm. about the drugs, but they didn't really talk about the girl stuff because it was a bit embarrassing. Yeah. And by the time you got yeah. into the 90s properly, it was, that was definitely celebrated. You know, it was the groupies and the, you know, it was a shift and there wasn't anywhere to escape to by then. And it's like, right, if you haven't realised that there is a very different vibe, right, about a woman on the cover of a magazine in a bikini and a bloke in a pair of swimming shorts, if you haven't realised the difference between that, Mm. that is bullshit, okay? Mm. Yeah, totally. There was a lot of that. When Lush spit up, did that culture that you just described, did that contribute to you thinking, actually, I'm not going to stay in music, I'm going to go and get what you describe as a proper job? I mean, a little bit in that I think, I mean, first of all, you know, the band split up really because of Chris's suicide. And I think, mm. I, you know, to be honest with you, the only person who was ever close, very close to me who had died before that was Nora. And I didn't give a fuck about her dying, <laughs> you know. I mean, I literally didn't feel anything. You know, I thought I'd be happier, actually. (laughs) But it was just empty. It was just like too late, whatever. But I think Chris dying absolutely fucking destroyed me. Mm. And I just, you know, I tried going to a few gigs. It was just a disaster. I I kind of realised that I'm not going to bring my own happiness. If people go to gigs, they want to have a nice time. They don't want to see me 
fucking sobbing in the corner and whatever. Mm. Do you know what I mean? It's not the right environment. But the other thing was, was, you know, I was quite conscious that I was 30. And although it sounds ludicrous now, you know, that felt like over the hill. I mean, half of those Britpop girls were that age, but, you know, they worked on their look and they, they dressed young, actually, you know, Mm. and, and I just didn't feel that it would, I just didn't think I had any chance, to be honest, of having any kind of impact. And I also had lost the band. I had, I've never had an interest in being a solo performer. So it would have meant finding a band, all of that just seemed like too big a hill to climb. And I needed to get away from that world because everything, it was all associated with Chris and I couldn't really climb out of it. I actually got through our mutual contact, Liz Evans. She was the one who was actually working at IPC in the TV listings department. Oh, was she? And she oh was God. sort of scouting around for people. She, I think we were at some barbecue and she said, oh, I was going to ask such and such if they wanted to, if they wanted a job there. And I was like, hand in the air. I was going, hey, you know, because I had done some subbing, like I, this woman had mentored me. So I'd done a bit of editing. So when Liz kind of said there's this job going, and it was freelance, they had a huge pool of people. Yeah, back when the TV listings magazines, that subbing job was huge job wasn't it every week yeah and, and you know and they had a lot of people because it was all the satellite channels I mean fucking hell you know it was hilarious you know S4C TV listings and oh my god <laughs> yeah. Welsh language oh my god yeah. loads of farming and what have you but anyway it was a really fun environment it was a bit of a revelation how how the corporate world was actually, certainly on the surface, really not sexist. There's no way you could have got away with the behaviour I saw in the music industry Mm. in a kind of like an office environment like that. And that really surprised me. God, I had no idea, like maternity pay and all these sort of structures that were in Mm. place for like women, which nothing in the music industry. It was like, good Lord, God forbid that you got pregnant and became a mother. Good luck. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Literally. What would have happened? Do you think? I would have had to leave the band. There's no way. It was not constructed for, you know, there's certain people who did it. You know, I remember like um, Liz Cocteau's, did go on tour with Lucy, but you know, she was with Robin at the time, albeit in a very problematic relationship. And they had a lot of money. So they had a nanny go on tour, blah, blah, mm. blah. Kristen Hirsch would go on tour with her kids, but she is like a real frontiers woman. You yeah. Know? <laughs> like, yeah. She's really pioneering, isn't she? Yeah. yeah. You know, and has never taken shit from anyone. Most of us fall far short of that. And the and I think it would have been very unforgiving. It would have been like, I don't think there would have been much accommodation of like, oh, it would have just been a big sigh of like, well, this is a pain in the ass, isn't it? You know, mm. she's got a baby now. How are we going to fucking make that oh, We work? need to get another one. You know, and again, it might, it might have even been like, oh, well, you could bring your baby on tour. And it's like, well, who fucking wants to do that? You know, yeah. that has never appealed to me. To me, especially growing up the way mm. I did, I'm a bit like, no, that's an adult zone. Children need to be around other children, not fucking in a tour bus around a load of adults going from pillar to post. I mean, that's just not. Do you think when you did have your children in your early 30s, that, um, like you said, your 
you were just talking about your childhood experience. Now, did that have a big impact on how you parented them? I mean, I think that I, I think I tried harder than my parents did at making a relationship work. People love to think that it's just an idyllic little, you know, oh, you're so lucky you met Moose and everything was hunky-dory and you had children. It wasn't. I think everybody struggles, you know, if yeah. children change a relationship and, you know, that can be quite hard to get through. And I think given my past, you know, I did have to kind of fight that that flight urge, you know, because that's how I'd run every relationship before that. When it becomes too problematic, it's like, oh, well, plenty of other fish in the sea, you know. But I was very conscious that once I had children, that's not really an option. Now, I'm not saying I acted perfectly at all. You know, I had to, I just had to step up to that. I had to centre the children because that was the most important thing and I did really enjoy it you know I found a whole other life that was school you meet other parents it was brilliant I I loved it you know and again on a very personal level I've always found relationships my sort of you know the men in my life or whoever there is something about a shared sphere that I think is really important interests are key obviously I think even an experience, you know, going out to work, that idea of the man going out to work and the woman at home, people can make that work. But for me, that's like two completely separate experiences that divide you. I kind of need that in a relationship that we understand each other and we understand each other's experiences that you haven't got that conversation of a man going like, well, I've been at work all day. And the the woman going like, oh, I've been fucking looking after the kids all bloody day. Like Mm. maybe unpaid, but it's still fucking work, you know? And, and, you know, to be fair, when I went and worked at IPC, I couldn't really work part-time when the job came up. I had to work full-time, whereas he was teaching so he could work part-time. So he actually did a lot of the picking up the kids from school, you know, and, you know, we made that decision financially that we would have less money because we did want one of us there, yeah. you know. But a lot of the time it was him. And I think with, it always astonishes me when you get, I have met men who were like, who are, oh, I could never, I could never be like with a woman who earns more than me. Now, I literally cannot get my head around that. I could never be with a man who has a problem with that. <laughs> but does it make any sense? Yeah, we're saying it out loud. <laughs> It's like, really? And, it, and I find it sort of fascinating, actually. But, and I've heard women say it as well. You know, oh, I couldn't mm. be, I'd, I'd have to have a man who's like, you know, financially more successful to me. And I think, why? It's isn't weird, it about isn't opportunity? It? And you're a couple, you roll with whatever. If a job comes up one direction, you go with that. And if it comes up the other direction, you go with that. To sort of set it in stone just seems crazy it's to me bizarre also things change don't they in the context of any relationship any life things change yeah I want to talk to you about aging and being 56 how is 56 56 is it's a little bit scary in that 60 is the next milestone and you do sort of think fucking hell really that sounds really <laughs> doesn't it <laughs> um it's I'm not going to lie, the physical aspect is an almighty pain in the ass, right? That kind of, 
I think, again, in your book, the sort of the, the flesh duvet or whatever, which I thought was oh, hilarious. I can't see a flesh duvet. Oh, my God. I'll raise you my flesh duvet. <laughs> like, we're like squeezing bits of ourselves now. Yeah, you know, yeah. this, whatever. But, and, and part of that, I think, is because I was never like you. You know, the whole goth thing, the blah, 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 the not being the pretty girl and all of that. It takes so much work to be that, actually. If you're a goth, it's actually, I could do my makeup in five minutes. People think it takes ages. It doesn't, no. right? It's hand-fisted eyeliner. It's like yeah, those thick, great big lines. Yeah, it's it's plaster it on, just, you know, throw your hair, back comb your hair and shake it about a bit and that's yeah. it, you're done. Oh, my God, when you meet women who I have, you know, gone on holiday with who actually look, you know, great, but in a much more straight way. It fucking takes forever. Yeah. Right. That natural look that takes half an hour to pull off. Yeah. Yeah. It's way more work. So I've never been used to that kind of grooming and care and trying on endless clothes to find the right fucking ones and shoes and the whatever, the beauty treatments, the salons, the plucking and the all of that. I've never done that, you know. Yeah. People think like, oh, yeah, but you used to dye your hair red. Really? I just used to shove the bleach on and, and I don't know, do whatever I was going to do anyway. Chuck the red on, it would go everywhere. It's not that high maintenance. Yeah. And I think that, you know, being in your 50s then, it's like, wow. So actually just to be normal or what you consider normal yeah. or what normal was 20 years ago or even 10 years ago takes so much work. And I haven't got the fucking time to do, you know, go to it, join a gym or do hot yoga or whatever the hell it's meant to be. You know what I mean? I just have to, I think, do you know what? I went to Sainsbury's and I took all the shopping in a rucksack and I walked home. That'll do. Yeah. I, like, all the fitness has to be involved in the whatever else is going on. Have you had menopause? I assume so. But I'm on HRT, so I've got no fucking idea, you know. Mm. When did the HRT, when did you start the HRT? I started it, I'm not even sure how long ago. I'll tell you what I, I had was, like, the menopause slightly took me by surprise. Well, probably that's not a surprise in itself. I think it does for most women. Yeah, yeah me too. And what was weird is I didn't really get, like, I didn't get hot flushes. I was a little bit warmer at night. <laughs> you know, there was the leg out of the bed thing. Yeah. The thing I got was like joint ache, which I've never had in my life. You know, I'm actually quite flexible, never been a thing. Hips, you know, kind of, what's this? This is weird, you know. And also like what felt like depression, right? Yeah. Now I've had a multitude of mental mania in my entire life. Depression is not one of them. And it really was this kind of waking up in the morning and just this hopelessness of like, oh, what's the point? <laughs> you know? And I thought, this is new. This is not mm, something I'm familiar with. So I actually went to the doctor. I did kind of read up on it a bit. I thought it was quite interesting that when I looked into it, that, that in Japan, hot flushes aren't really a thing. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? And I thought it's quite it's interesting. Like diet how related, do you think? I don't or genetic, know. Or? I, I have no idea. You know, and I think sometimes. 
sometimes those things are overlooked, you know, with healthcare. I mean, we know about that with beauty, you know what mm. I mean? I find it quite funny when you go to a department store now and foundation comes in about 40 shades. I know, it used to be three, didn't it? Yeah. Like, yeah. Um, and because now people do accommodate the different types of skin colour. Better late than never, yeah. Exactly. But I think, you know, medically that's quite tricky as well. And I think women have always been overlooked full stop, mm. you know what I mean? And symptoms that are different in women and, and meds that yeah. have a different effect on I women. I think there's very little. I mean, there's been so little work done on, on menopause anyway. And Yeah, and I think sometimes it is just that idea of, I don't know if they're genetic or down to diet but or, or even just culture. Yeah, but mm. and I don't really know, but I do... Th- there are differences and therefore I think there are different health treatments to look out for. You know, we test for certain things, you know, in Britain on the NHS. Thank you very much. That's great. But I'm not sure it covers everything because I do wonder if in different, different kind of, you know, races mm. or different environments, there are different things they test for. I don't know, you know, mm. but, but, and certainly with the menopause, you know, what are the things to look out for? Because I certainly was waiting for hot flushes and they never came. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because I had uh, lots of kind of like psychological things and it was only when I started getting hot flushes that I thought, oh, maybe it's that. Maybe all these other things have actually been that. Because like, yeah, like so still it's like hot flushes are the red flag, aren't they? Yeah. Yes. And of course. And what about, you're not in the music industry anymore, but would you go back? I mean, I kind of am in the, you know, I think with Proshka, you know, the band that I was doing after Lush, which was only in the last sort of five years. It was of after course, Lush. Yes, after the, the Lush reunion. Yes, yeah. of course, of course. And I have to say, even with the Lush reunion, you know, go back, going back in, you know, also Lush, Lush already had a certain status. I was older. I didn't really have to deal with the sort of shit that I had to deal with back then, not all the time. And I was better able to cope with it because I do get asked, oh, you know, what advice would you have for younger women now going into the music industry? And I always say, I don't know, because I I don't have to deal with the crack that a 20-year-old would have to deal with. No. Right, it's very different. You know, if there's someone I don't like, I'll just fucking say so. And I'm not on the same platform right um people will not you know there are younger men they're younger I don't have to please them I don't give a fuck what they think if they think I'm an old bag I I think yeah I am yeah so fucking what you know and I think that's one of the liberating things you know just back to when you talk about what's 56 like I mean again I'm sort of going to refer to your book because I thought that was really interesting the invisible bit because I definitely remember that everyone will think I've put you up to this no, no, no. Yeah, but I mean, I did just listen to it, you know, and so it's kind of very live in my head, you know. And I think, you know, there was a period in my 40s. I think, you know, motherhood as well, that brings a whole load of stuff. Um, I think 40s is where I noticed first that invisible thing. I did feel like, you know, I can literally remember once being on the tube and going up the escalator and there was a young girl and woman in front of me whose shoe got trapped. She kind of lost her shoe and I was ended up on all fours trying to help her. And actually people were just streaming past it. And the girl as well, I gave her a shoe back, she just walked off. 
So weird, isn't it? And yeah, I actually found it worse in my 40s than in my 50s, but I actually wonder whether it hasn't changed, hasn't got better. It's just I don't care anymore and that maybe I cared in my 40s and now I couldn't give a monkey's. Well, I think it's that transitional period, isn't it? Because when you realise that something's gone, first thing you Mm. feel is loss, obviously. Um, It takes a while to realise that that might be a liberation. Mm. Um, although and what I distinctly remember is in the same week that the shoe incident happened and I was getting that kind of you know standing at the bar and going hello is anyone going to serve yeah, me literally, what have I got to do here to get served yeah. exactly but also in that same week kind of I don't know I was walking somewhere and some guy was kind of leaning against his car and started making that kind of a lady, you know, kind of like <laughs> whatever fucking noises at me. And I remember stopping and going, looking at him and going, seriously, what the fuck? Right. Yeah. And I thought, great. So I'm getting ignored when I don't want to be ignored. And then I'm getting my kind of, you know, womanliness highlighted oh, when I'm in the yeah. worst possible way. Yeah. And I just yeah. thought, this is really shit. And I think I did become quite angry quite publicly angry you know there's a reason why older women are seen as like you know I don't know grumpy whatever because you just get sick of it so you actually think all right well fuck it I'm just gonna make a bloody pain in the ass of myself you know I'm not gonna fucking stand here and be ignored have you felt any kind of like social pressure to have uh you know to have tweakments to pretend you're not aging word I hate it so funny it makes it sound I really hate it because it makes it sound like it's nothing and I kind of think if you want to do it great if you don't want to do it also great assuming you can afford to do it but it's not like a tweak it's like you're injecting a thing in your face well exactly but don't you think that plastic surgery was the same you know, it was nip and tuck and it um, was, yes, exactly. it was yeah. you know, it's a boob job, you know. Yeah, make it sound cute. A yeah. facelift, a facelift to me, it's like, you know, the number of women I used to meet who would go like, all I want is this. And they would sort of imperceptibly, you know, just pull the sides of their face up like by half a centimetre. And I'd be like, you realise that's not what a facelift is, right? It's someone literally separating the skin from your face. lifts your face. Shoving their hand (laughs) under your skin and then pulling it back like, you know, the equivalent is... Unroll a bit of cellophane and wrap it around your head. That's what a fucking face is. Yeah, I'm literally lifting your face off and up. You're right, tweakments. I mean, I love it because I just think it's so idiotic, right? It's so, why does everything sort of, you know, feminine have to be this sort of little pixie dust kind of oh it's cute and pink yeah yeah. it's just like a little sprinkle and it's like no it's a shitload of work Mm. and you are actually injecting poison into your face I'm sure I have again no problem with women who want to have it fill your boots I think my but I do think why right I am someone who if there's one thing I have a bit of a phobia about it's it's surgery like I do not I do not want to go into hospital unless I absolutely fucking have to. Yeah. Right. Voluntarily. I don't care enough about those things to undergo surgery or have something put in my face that I don't know what effect that might have in 20 years time. And I might look like I've had a fucking stroke. I don't know. So that's why I, I wouldn't go for those things. If you're doing it because you think you're crippled by people, you know, 
becoming invisible because you're no longer a sexually attractive woman, if you're doing it because you feel overlooked, because you don't want to be like an old bag or, you know, all of these kind of things that people are scared of, I would argue that is a terrible reason because you're scared of something that you've not yet experienced. Right. And believe me, when you get there, you will realize it is nowhere near as bad as you think. Mm. Okay. It's fucking great on a million levels. You will be liberated from all sorts of shit that you never thought you could be free of. And there's a bit of me that thinks getting the treatments and doing that is still keeping that bit of your youth. The worst bit of it. It's not just the best bit. It's not just, hey, and by the way, anyone who gets that stuff, you don't just look, you don't really look young. You look like you've had work. Yeah. Okay. And it's that's such a good point. It is, it feels, that's exactly it. It feels like clinging on to the bad bit. You have to have that as well. You know, yeah. people who go, people who are doing triathlons, right? Great. You're fucking doing something amazing. Yeah. People who are going to the gym because they just want to keep their fucking waistline. Yeah. That's for me again, it's the wrong reason. Yeah. Why? Yeah. Do it because you don't want to end up, you know, unable to bend weak, you know, absolutely. So much of that kind of trying to stay young is actually keeping all the sort of, you know, the, the anxiety of being young. There's different anxieties that you get being old, you know, but at least they knew, God, it's so boring. It's the same anxieties. Yeah. Doesn't that feel like I haven't fucking got anywhere? I couldn't bear to to go back to those things that I used to agonise about in my 20s. God. I mean, again, taking a fucking leaf out of men's books, by the way, you know, I had two incidences in my 40s that I thought were, just so funny. One of them was online. I was not a very online person, but when I kind of, I remember seeing sort of lush stuff online and there was some guy who had posted something because there was this, all. I kind of did enjoy quite kind of looking up, whatever happened to lush and, you know, what's Mickey doing these days? Can't help but Google yourself. And (laughs) some guy posted, oh, yeah, I was in New York and I I saw her coming out of a movie theatre sadly she's let herself go a bit and I thought okay first of all it wasn't me because I've been in New York for a fucking decade and a half (laughs) and I thought how fucking dare you right and I thought I bet you're some fucking bearded fat fuck you know you're sitting in a basement stinking to high heaven and you've got the nerve to say that to me yeah and the other one was when I was going to visit my dad in Hungary Friend of the family. It's a nice guy, but he was like, oh, Nikki, you know, you need to dye your roots. Like you're, you're going a bit grey. And I, and I looked at him and I thought, I'm not being funny, but you've literally got straggly grey hair. Be sitting there in a pair of fucking Speedos with this pot belly. And I was, and I was like, have you fucking had a look in the mirror? Like, <laughs> again, men are more fitness conscious and body conscious these days. But I grew up in a world where... Women often, you know, who were, I'm not going to lie, you know, a lot of the women my mum knew and my dad knew were quite glamorous, actually, even in their 50s. But they looked after themselves and, and you know, they had a certain pride in how they, the blokes looked like shit. That's so right. Yeah. And they didn't fucking care. 
at all. And there was there is a bit of me that remembers that. And and, yeah. and I'm not going to go as far as that because there are health issues. And yeah, you know, as women, if you spent all that time worrying about how you look to whatever greater or lesser degree, it's always with you a bit, you know. But I do take a leaf out of the men's book because I think we didn't fucking bother them, you yeah. know, and that I know what they look like as a young man, slim and tall, and they look fucking hot. And here they are at 50 with a massive beer gut, you know what I mean? And Exactly, yeah. Nose hair and what have you, and they don't seem to fucking care. They're still having a good time. And then saying, you let yourself go. It's like, what? Exactly. Yeah. Oh, God, I could sit in your kitchen all day. (laughs) I better ask you the questions that I always ask at the end, or I will be in your kitchen all day. What's your emotional age? Like all all of them. There's a bit, do you know what? Have you ever read Kurt Vonnegut? Yes, not for a long time. Okay. He had these creatures. I think they were from Tralfamador and they would see human beings as a trail. Like, so from birth to Mm. age, like all at once. Right. When you ask me that question, I think that bit of me is still a teenager. That bit of me is probably actually like a fucking 90 year old woman. Mm. That bit of me is when I had children in my thirties and it's really difficult for me to pull all those different aspects apart. I That's think interesting. so. I can't really pick anything. Give us a book recommendation. So it can be something you've always loved or just something you read lately that you like. Oh, God. I don't, oh, I tell you what, someone recommended me. Is it okay? Harriet Gibson. What did you like about it? I chimed with so much of it because I think that she does have overthinking constant sort of self-doubt self-analysis goes through even the simplest things and it's I think it's it's sort of a really interesting book because she's someone who's a little bit younger and was brought up very much more in an online world and so there's quite a lot about her obsession with googling people and Mm. and over that that kind of you know obsessiveness that that is massively facilitated to people's detriment by the internet interesting what advice would you give younger women not younger women in the music industry (laughs) just younger women it's so difficult with advice isn't it because any advice you would give to younger people they'd ignore yeah exactly um I mean I would funny enough I do think that when I when Lush finished so I did a course and then like an online course and then uh a friend of hers, this woman, Mitzi, had been actually run over at Zebra Crossing. So she was kind of housebound at the time. Oh and she said, oh, she's a great editor. And, you know, she offered to mentor me. So I would rock up with like, you know, I'd go and get her shopping and stuff and kind of bring stuff to the house because she was stuck there. But she had such an amazing attitude because I think when I met her, she was probably in her 70s. And she'd been in publishing for quite a long time. She didn't have children. And she was this real little kind of dynamo, you know, really opinionated and kind of socialist. And I do remember sort of saying to her, like, did you, it's interesting that you never got married. And she said, oh, you know, none of my sisters, she said there was five of us, none of us had children. And I was like, God, that's quite unusual for the time. Oh, you know, I had boyfriends and, you know, and all of that. But she said, you know, Mickey, men are such hard work. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you're right. (laughs) But, you know, when she was in her 80s, 
think she got some sort of bladder cancer, so she had some major operation. But she was such a fucking glass half full person. You know, she was like, oh, I had such brilliant treatment on the NHS. She had to move house because they sold the flats that she was renting and she never owned. And when she moved, she was like, oh, you know, it's kind of a pain, you know, and the other place was better for this. But I have such a lovely guy at the front desk. He's so gorgeous. And and I just thought, oh, my God, if I can grow old, see the positive to that degree mm. through illness, through being on your own. She had a lively circle of friends. I thought, wow, that's definitely the old age I want. She sounds amazing. She was. What's your superpower? What, something that I think I have that's a superpower? Yeah, either or something you, can, want. you can have it either way. Or you can be the way you could be. What would, what would be the superpower that you'd really like to have? Like in a like a superhero, superpower kind of way? Or just what are you really good at? I don't think I'm that good at anything. I know that sounds like <laughs> humble brag or whatever, but I, I do. I think I, I think most. I'm genuinely mostly riddled by self doubt, and even the things I think I'm good at, a week later, I think I'm not good at. I think if I could have a superpower, I would have the obvious one, which is flying. I mean, yeah, who doesn't want that? I think I'd like to teleport. Yes, but that <laughs> you probably want to teleport because you just want to. You're trying to be like working and yeah you're right actually <laughs> you don't yeah. want to deal with the jubilee line yeah when it that's exactly yeah that's exactly and that's it, just yeah. more work then you're just going to do more work you're right <laughs> you're right god how have you managed to bust me <laughs> last one how many fucks you give increasingly fewer for sure brilliant thank you thank you so much that's that's so right. much for your time no it was great <laughs> thank you for I felt bad dragging you up here when you were having all that tube night when I thought, oh no, if I'd have gone into town. No, no, I really wanted to come up here. It's just like sod's law. It's like <laughs> the Jubilee line will be down on that day. Always. King London underground. I know. Thank you for listening. If you like this episode, you might enjoy my interviews with Martha Wainwright and Tracy Thorne. You'll find links to them in the show notes. You can hear a new episode of The Shift each Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please do rate, review and follow because it really does help other people find us. And if you'd like more of The Shift in your life, head over to theshiftwithsambaker.substack.com and sign up for weekly newsletters, podcast extras and more.